0: So welcome to this third podcast uh, covering rheumatological toxicities. And and we're really now going to get into an area that Anna's teased us about three times, uh, which <laughs> is polymyalgia rheumatica um, and giant cell arthritis. So um, Anna, let's start to think about this area because I think I see quite a lot of patients who present with symptoms that are quite consistent with sort of what I think is fairly traditional polymyalgia rheumatica. So I guess here's what I think when I think about, you know, polymyalgia rheumatica, I'm thinking about the slightly older patient. I'm thinking typically those over 50. Um, I'm thinking about the predominant symptom being that generalized sort of aching, particularly in the shoulders or in the in the girdle, um, and then I'm and and and. And then I'm thinking about the association with giant cell arthritis. So just tell me, is there any differences or nuances when we're thinking about polymalgia, secondary checkpoint inhibitors, both in terms of presentation, but also in terms of symptoms?
1: Not really, to be honest. They are quite similar. I think it's, the it, again, it can be quite subtle. So it, it's that case of just trying to work out whether we are going, oh, you're a bit achy because you're on treatment versus, oh, actually, there's something going on here that we need to do something about. And I think, <laughs> quite understandably, you know, I think everybody knows about immune-related adverse events. Everybody's aware of them. Everybody would much rather their patients not to have them, which I can completely understand. So I think sometimes it's very reasonable to do sort of a bit of a watch and wait. But I think you just have to make sure you're acknowledging the fact that there's an issue. Um, and the fact that this could be what's going on, because if the patients don't get better, then we do need to think about treating them. Um, but I think in terms of their presentation, it can be quite subtle to start with. It can um, it can be sort of noticing and, and the sort of classic things that you think about when you think about PMR. So people struggling to brush their hair, struggling to get sort of plates or cans off the top shelves of cupboards because it hurts those things are as relevant in our population as they are in in sort of the the sort of standard PMR group. So if people are starting to describe those things, we need to make sure we're picking up on them um, and not sort of um, discounting them. But but in terms of the presentation, I think it is fairly similar, Um, but certainly something we see, I would say, more frequently than maybe is reported in the literature. Um, So I, I think we definitely see it um more. Um but I think that's true for quite a lot of the sort of the nuance of most of these conditions. So the sort of the the, the sort of the, the big umbrella terms are there. In terms of the different sort of subdivisions that we see, I think that's true for quite a lot of things. But certainly it, it's very similar otherwise. Um so anybody that comes in with it's normally upper limb. Some people can get bilateral um hip um hip pain and and sort of pelvic discomfort um so it's not to discount it if that's going on but often it's it's shoulder pain and i think you know it's that kind of it's the the upward motion that they struggle with so i think that's probably why people are more aware of when in in their shoulders um they can get some swelling um they don't tend to in honesty but they can do um and then obviously it's really important to make sure you think you, you're ruling out giant cell arthritis as an associated condition so people that are com- presenting with frontal headache particularly around the temples or experiencing jaw claudication when they're eating those things again you want to make sure if they're describing this this sort of morning stiffness with 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 pain in their shoulders and problems lifting up to, to reach for things at that point you want to go, okay, do you have either of these other symptoms? Because it's important to make sure we're recognizing that.
0: Okay. And let's think then about um giant cell arthritis or temporal arthritis is how I remember it when I was at medical school. So yeah what um uh what what is it why does it matter why is it associated and 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 why do we need to think about it in the context of I/O toxicity?
1: okay so it's it's important so it it, it basically it's it's inflammation of the large vessels um your temporal arteries and essentially the reason it's important is because you can get visual loss as a result if we don't recognize it so people can go blind um, so that's why it's important to ask a couple of vel- relatively easy questions um, to make sure you exclude it. So they'll often describe sort of pulsing around, their head, around the around the temples. They'll describe um, uh, se- severe or sort of starting as mild and then working up to be severe pain and headache. And they'll often describe it as a as a headache. So you don't know whether you're dealing with sort of just a normal you know, tension headache, whether you're dealing with something like a, you know, a hypophysitis or whether that you know GCA is the bottom of that list of likelihoods, but it's something that if it's associated with other other rheumatological type symptoms, then it's a bit more likely. Um and again, if you treat it, um it can it can it can be completely manageable and not and not too much of a problem. Whereas if you if you miss it, then it obviously it can lead to, to quite significant morbidity. Um, so it's just important. And the two are associated, the, the the you know, PMR and GCA often go hand in hand. So it's just important to make sure you're ruling out that, that, that they aren't in the presence of each other. And similarly, if you if you recognise somebody's got a temporal arteritis, you want to make sure they haven't got symptoms of PMR as well. It's It's a two way street.
0: Okay, and if somebody's got those symptoms consistent with um, temporal arthritis, again, I, I know about the ocular complications. Again, I'm pulling that from the back of my mind. Do I? Who do I need to involve? Is is it just? Can I manage it with with what we're going to talk about in terms of steroids next? Do I need to get ophthalmology to be involved? Do I need to get rheumatology involved? Who am I involving?
1: So for. For giant cell particularly, you want you we need to confirm it is in fact the case, and the the way to do that is to do um a temporal artery ultrasound, um and uh, so I tend to always get my uh, rheumatologists involved relatively soon, partly because of the fact that um. It helps confirm the diagnosis, and also you do treat giant cell arthritis with steroids. Um, but if it doesn't respond to steroids, then they normally get treated with weekly tocilizumab, and that can only be accessed via uh, they have to go through a giant cell arthritis MDT, and then their MDT has to agree that that's what they need to be treated with, and then then their then their treatment has to be um, organised by by a rheumatologist. Um, and as I said, there are some things you can do on the previous podcast. You have some things you can do to work in combination with those with those rheumatologists, so you can get the process started. But in reality, the way that NHS commissioning is, they have to hold, they have to look after them, and it and it's and it's a it's a subcutaneous dose given once a week for a year, um. So to be able to access that, they have to be under the care of a rheumatologist. So I would say this is one of those conditions where working very closely with the rheumatologist, but them them sort of delivering that care is is really important. The other thing is that the MDT are really good at looking at all of the information, so they will do, you know, we have what we call a rheumatoid a rheumatology panel for immune related adverse events. And so I use this for um, those that are presented with arthritis and those that are presented with myalgia and 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 similarly, if I think they've got DCA. So it's the same things we were talking about earlier, but thinking about doing an ESR and a CRP, doing a CK and a rheumatoid factor and an anti-CCP. Um, in terms of the things that are elevated, ESRs are very elevated normally um, for patients who have got GCSA, GCA and are elevated in PMR, although slightly less so. Um, so a high ESR and ultrasound findings in keeping with with giant cell or temporal arteritis is enough to make the diagnosis. They used to biopsy the temporal artery as well. Um, if they find, um, it seems sort of we sort of slightly moved away from that. If we've got findings that we are think we think are consistent with GCA, so if the ultrasound is diagnostic, you don't need a biopsy. If the ultrasound is not diagnostic, then you can still consider a temporal artery biopsy to prove it.
0: Okay. Then Anna, again, I was going to make this reflection in the last the the last talk, but it's come back to mind now. It feels like IL six has a really prominent role in in rheumatology and rheumatological disorders and I, again I'm thinking in um that there was a trial that uh, Jeffrey Weber was involved in looking at and so it's I'm just I'm just kind of my little minds connecting these dots and I'm mm-hmm. wondering is there is there something in the IL-6 story I know that we're not going to get into the depths of, of sort of biology and cytokines but I'm presuming there is something in the IL-6 and, and room
1: kind of story yeah i love deep 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 biology and cytokines anyway um <laughs> so so yes so il6 is um is considered to be increasingly important as a downstream um sort of inflammatory uh, mitigate, uh sort of propagator but it certainly is involved in a lot of rheumatological conditions we think that it is is in, probably involved in quite a lot of io um Toxicities. We're desperately trying to get to a point where we've got some translational data to book, to back that up because, again, it's it kind of comes out as a as a feature in quite a lot of um a lot of small studies that says this might be relevant. And so, you know, we've talked about the use of tocilizumab, which is an anti IL six, in quite a number of our toxicities as a possibility. You know, there are there is some small evidence for it to be used in pneumonitis. There's some small evidence for it to be used. Um, in myocarditis um, uh, and certainly other areas and and rheumatological toxicities is one of those you're absolutely right um, about the the, there was a trial um, that was presented at ESMO 2021 um, that was a a small combination ipinevo trial in melanoma where they used um, an anti-IL-6 alongside uh, the combination to try and see if they got less toxicity but with maintained efficacy and it was a very small study wasn't powered to necessarily be practice changing but they and they what they did show was that they reduced the the incidence of grade three four toxicity interestingly they didn't eradicate it um so it probably shows that as we have long suspected it's multi you know there's multi-mechanistic um but anti but il6 is probably one of our main propagators and it seems to be the case in rheumatological conditions as well so both arthritis and also also things like mpmr and gca it seems to be a downstream um uh, factor so if you block that then actually you can you can prevent the ongoing inflammation um so i suspect il6 and its and its inhibitors will become a more prominent feature of things as we get to understand it more and also we get to understand where its role is among sort of the other mediators that we we block so you know, we we always talk about TN anti TNF alphas as well, so infliximab, and um, and that is tends to be higher up in the inflammatory cascade, and actually can we target IL six, which is a bit further down, and get a more specific inflammatory response, which maybe maybe less involved with the malignant response that we see from checkpoint inhibitors. So lots of lots of potential questions at the moment, less less clear in terms of answers. The other thing that I think is quite interesting in this setting is tocalizumab can either be used IV or it can be used to cut. So, they, so as I said, um, for giant cell arthritis, the, the the dosing of tocalizumab is subcutaneous given every week. And we don't u- we don't think about using that at all. We've never used that at all really in uh, in IO toxicity. So I think there's both a question of mechanism, root, duration that are all potential trials in the making, but we don't have the answers as yet.
0: Okay, that's great. Because I remember, I remember it might have been twenty twenty one as well. I think I went to a talk that Georgina Long gave, and I'm pretty certain she presented some some tocilizumab data. and And I think, in essence, the conclusion was that it was well tolerated, uh, you know, an effective steroid sparing treatment for both uh, management but also prevention of of um, adverse events. So, that, you know, the, the and, and clearly two very eminent people. So I'm guessing there's something in that story, and and I'm sure it's something that you know we'll continue to explore um and i just thought we would get on to thinking about management of polymyalgia rheumatica um and again you know my my impression, my reflection on this is it's not too dissimilar from what we do outside of IO. So, you know, in, in the non IO world, we tend to use fairly low doses of prednisolone, the 20, 30 milligrams kind of ballpark response rate seem to be pretty good. and 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 again, that's my impression in both. So just your thoughts, is that what you're doing? And then in terms of the refractory cases, is it similar? Are we thinking methotrexate, you know, plus minus as absolutely needed, you know, biologics and IL6? Is it is it similar in that story? Is that the narrative?
1: Absolutely. I think it's interesting in terms of what we're trying to achieve with the with the the treatment, particularly of PMR. So so as as a standard, um, patients will normally started on higher doses of steroids, up to forty milligrams of prednisolone, and then they're weaned down to to between. 10 and 5 milligrams and they stay on that for often forever um in the sort of setting of sort of de novo pmr and i suppose again it comes down to our question of do they need to stay on it lifelong or can we actually think about weaning them off steroids completely and um uh, and I think it's one of those where you don't know how long, how long is long enough because we can't use the, <clears throat> excuse me, we can't use the sort of PMR population to guide us because they don't really ever come off it. Um, and also the question is, is five milligrams the right amount or actually can they? So so sometimes, and again, it's not, it's not completely um uniform but some will stay on five some will kind of come down then from five to four to three to two until the point where they get control of their so it's the point at which they 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 stop it from flaring um but um but actually on the lowest dose possible so some People will be on two milligrams of of prednisolone long term. So, um, I, I tend to adopt the same process in in our in our patient population. So, um, we will start and we t- normally start on twenty milligrams and bring it down like we 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 would for the rheumatological conditions, um, and then we t- maintain them on five and then we then we start weaning them down and seeing. So, initially we'll stop five. So we'll use the same process as we use for um, the other rheumatological conditions and we will stop it as we would do and see whether they get recurrence of their symptoms if they do we go back on five and then do a longer wean and then often i will then bring it down by one milligram to stop um and i i don't we don't tend to need i've certainly not seen a case of pmr where i've needed to use additional treatment so they are very similar to their to their sort of um sort of endogenous counterparts in the fact that it's quite rare to need to use other agents in pmr and i think that's very true in our population as well In our um, GCA population, um, as we've discussed, actually going for a biologic seems to be a a more sort of standardised route than it used to be. Um, And I certainly would be thinking if I've got a patient who's not responding to steroids or has responded to steroids, but I can't get them down to lower doses. At that point, I'd be thinking about a rheumatological um, referral rather than thinking about a second line DMARD. Whereas in my arthritis population, I'll quite Often start a, a, a methotrexate or a DMARD and see whether that that sorts out the situation before needing to for the rheumatologist to take them over. So, I think this group is a more sort of low threshold. If they're not acting in a sort of fairly standard manner, I would refer them to rheumatology and, and ask them to 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 sort of drive their their care following that, but in collaboration with me.
0: Fantastic. Okay. well, our audience can be really pleased, Anna, because this is the first podcast we're going to finish within 20 minutes. Hurrah! (laughs) Yeah, no, indeed. Because in the next one, we're going to do myositis and dermatomyositis, And I think we might be here till midnight. So (laughs) I will see you shortly.
1: I'll see you then. Bye.